The raising of Lazarus is a majestic picture of what happens to the sinner when he comes to Jesus in belief that results in everlasting life. Let's just review a little bit from verse 41 through verse 44, and then let's think through how this is a picture of this, this new birth, of this, this change that takes place in a believer. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that, that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you, that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So there's really four things I just want to pull out as, as we begin this morning, just to remind us that this, this is a picture, although it's a real a uh, real story, a real accounting that, that foreshadows what Jesus was going to do. It's also a picture of what happens to someone who is a sinner who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. So let's think through this a little bit. Number one, Lazarus is dead. Now friends, this is so foundational to the gospel. In order for us to actually come to the place where we are experiencing life, we have to know the distinction between death and life and that we are dead without Christ. Lazarus was dead. We know that uh, because of the eyewitness account. We know that because of the four days. The evidence is there. He was dead. Secondly, he is raised. And this is what happens to us. When, when God breathes life into us, he breathes life into someone who is dead. We are raised. Okay, We are given new life. That's the idea of what is taking place here. He raised he is raised out of the graveyard of death by the power of God, and he is given life, and that's what happens to us. He is set free, and we are set free. Just as Lazarus is set free from his grave clothes and given freedom, so the new child of God is set free from the power of sin. And finally, he is seated with Christ. We know that from chapter 12, verse 2, where Jesus comes into this, this scenario here, and the focus of attention may be on, on what Mary is doing, but we find him seated at the table with Christ. And of course, that's what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, that we are seated, seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, I'd like for us to open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 once again. I, I began our services today with this passage, but I think it's helpful for us to be re reminded of what that actually looks like rooted in the, the text of Scripture, in particular one of the epistles that, that fleshes it out. And you see some of the, the same language, the same things that are being talked about in Ephesians 2 that we have seen on display here through this, this wonderful and incredible sign and, and miracle that Jesus performs. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And you were, what? Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now that's quite a picture. That's the bad news, right? But that's the real news. That is truth. It's recognizing that we are dead before Christ. Notice at verse 4, 
but God. So we have a kind of a hinge. We have a transition statement here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Pause. Was there love demonstrated in what Jesus was doing with the Lazarus story? That's a big theme in that first part of chapter 11, isn't it? So we have, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us what? Alive, together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's another way of saying belief. Now friends, I, I, I take us there to remind us that what we have here in the raising of Lazarus, yes, is a historical event, but it is it is also more evidence that John is giving the reader, that would be us, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that through Jesus Christ, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we will have life. So I want to remind you also then of verse 41, or actually in particular verse 42, but we'll begin at verse 41 what Jesus prays before he raises Lazarus. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this, get this, on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is being very, very purposeful in saying what he is saying as he's praying to his father, he wants the people around him to hear what he's saying because he wants the glory of God to be on display and the results of that is that people would see the evidence, the proof, and see that Jesus is the agent of God, he is God himself, and he is the source of the power that would raise Lazarus from the dead, and as a result of that, they would believe. And what we have now in the rest of this chapter are responses to that resurrection. Responses to what happened with Lazarus. And we find those responses really falling out in three groups. We have eyewitnesses, we have um, the religious leaders, and ultimately we have the multitude. And each one gives us kind of a, a response. We have genuine belief, um, a united hostility, and a fickle superficiality, and we'll get there, but just understand these are three responses, and these are responses that are commonplace today, but these are responses that are gonna help us understand what it is that John is revealing to us as he records this story and what God is desiring for us to grow in. So let's begin here with the response of the eyewitnesses, um, and uh, uh, we'll first of all notice that there is this genuine belief. So these are eyewitnesses, and why do I say eyewitnesses? Because they were there, they were hearing everything that was going on, they were standing at the tomb, they were listening to Jesus pray, they were part of this entourage that was there, and had been there maybe for four days, but they were there when Jesus came and says, Lazarus, come out. They saw it firsthand. This isn't secondhand information. They were there to observe it for themselves. And as a result, we have really this kind of response. 
there is actually a divided response. The first one is genuine belief. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, talking about Jesus, believed in him. So it should remind us of what took place in John chapter 4. Look at John chapter 4 and verse 42 in particular. If you remember when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria, and she went and she told everyone about Jesus, right? But notice verse 42. This is now the people that are in the town where she lived. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard what? For ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Very, very powerful um, revelation that they had and demonstration. The same is true with what's going on here now in in John chapter 11, in particular, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, the Jews had come with Mary because they, um, they have considered the evidence. They, they've come to this place of belief because the evidence has been on display and now they believe. The blind now see. The dead are now raised to life. The enemies of God are now friends of God. There is genuine conversion that is taking place, I believe. And one of the reasons I believe that is true because of the comparison that John uses now with the others in the story that are eyewitnesses. You have a genuine belief, and notice here, there's this brazen unbelief, verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, if you're, if you're like me, you're probably reading this and you're scratching your head, asking yourself a couple of questions. Which is harder to believe? That Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb, proving once again that he is Christ? Or that they can walk away denying that Jesus is Christ. Which is harder to believe. I mean, here's Lazarus in the tomb for four days. It's all the evidence is there to say he truly was dead. And you know, if you remember, uh, what does is, what is, uh, Martha say? You know, it's Jesus. You know when you open up that, that grave, what's going to happen? All right, yeah, King James Version, he stinketh, right? I mean, they're, they're hearing all this. They're experiencing all Who knows? Maybe they smelled all this. And to have that firsthand experience and to see all this on display. And I'm pretty sure that they had heard other things about Jesus too. To walk away from that and to say, he's not Christ. He's not the Son of God. He is not the Messiah. I'm going to go to the Pharisees and I'm going to tell them what I've just seen. Now, just think about that whole scenario. Well, hey, you know, we've just come from Lazarus's tomb, um, who just rose from the dead, and uh, just want you to know that um, Jesus performed another miracle and he raised someone from the dead, and uh, there's a lot of people following him. Um, why then are you not following him, right? I mean, it's like, it just, it, wait a second here. This is an incredible miracle. This is an incredible demonstration of Jesus' power, and yet there is this unbelief. Now, friends, there's a sense in which we should not be surprised at this. Why? Because throughout 
John's gospel, we have, we have come face to face with people who have seen the truth on display, who have seen Jesus' power, who have heard Jesus speak and, 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 and uh, connected, might want to say, or been there when Jesus is connecting sign uh, you know, with, with, uh, with who he is, and they're just, they're just blind. They don't get it. And friends, it's a reminder to us that it doesn't matter how much evidence you put out there, there are some people that are just going to be blind. There are some people that will remain as enemies of God. And you have done everything you can. You know, someone might say, well, I've, I've read the Bible, read the Gospels. So what did you think? It was a good book. Blindness. And we've got to be careful that we do not feel guilty or ashamed because someone maybe that we're interacting with does not come to faith in Christ because of our efforts. If the evidence is put forward and they reject the evidence, you can't force it down their throat. Neither do you want to. You don't want to coerce any conversion. You want it to be God at work in them because life will result if God has breathed life into them. It will come out saying, teach me more, teach me more, teach me more. Now friends, it is much easier to have compassion on those who are walking in blindness and have experienced the dim light of general revelation and maybe have not heard an articulated gospel, but it is hard to have compassion on those who have come face to face with Jesus in all his glory and splendor and blazonly reject him. I mean, if you go to some country where there's some tribe and people have just heard the dim light of the gospel because they look in nature and they realize that there must be a creator, you have more compassion on them than the person who has been taught the truth of God but because of their sin has hardened themselves to the truth of God and they don't want anything of it. There is a brazenness that is going on here, but it's a brazenness that is the result of blindness. Now friends, we are, if we're God's children, we are, as John has even revealed to us, progressing in our belief, right? Those who are blind are actually progressing in their unbelief. Their unbelief becomes darker and darker. And every time there is evidence portrayed, evidence displayed, it is one more opportunity for them either to repent or to be seared in their conscience even more. So there's the response of the eyewitnesses Genuine belief, brazen unbelief, but this brazen unbelief then transitions over here into the response of the leaders, the response of the leaders. These unbelieving eyewitnesses speak to the Pharisees, but these Pharisees alone are not the official body who could have any judicial um, jurisdiction, or just, they, they, they aren't able to act really on what they are hearing Um, in such a way that they really want to. And so they bring the council together is what the passage tells us. And this council is actually the Sanhedrin. It is the 70 plus one. And this Sanhedrin was the uh, Jewish authority made up of primarily Sadducees who um, who were chief priests for the most part and and families of the uh, members of the chief priests then you had the, the minority party, which would be the Pharisees, and uh, they were primarily called scribes, and there were a few others that were in there, but it was 70 plus one, and the plus one would be the, chief, the actual chief priest, who in this story is Caiaphas. Now, it is worth knowing, though, as we kind of come into this, this picture here, 
that um, these Pharisees and Sadducees did not see eye to eye on many things. In particular, some theological things and practical points, they were in great opposition. For example, the Pharisees devoted uh, themselves to the law. They considered the Old Testament um, uh, and their traditions as inspired, as authoritative. The Sadducees only claimed the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament. So they, they, had a different, they had a different set of resources, so to speak, that were to fashion how they lived, okay? Secondly, the Pharisees affirmed the resurrection of bodies and of the belief in angelic beings. The Sadducees denied both of those things. So the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And of course, this, the joke there is that's why they were Sadducee. Okay? You've probably heard that plenty of times, but it's just one of those distinctions. The Pharisees were, were ultra, ultra nationalists. I don't know if they had flags back then, but you know, there'd be flags on every Pharisee household, so to speak. All right? Very, very strong nationalists, and they chafed under the yoke of Rome. However, the Sadducees were a little bit more... Uh, uh, politically opportune, and they found ways to compromise with Rome. And so it was kind of a different attitude. And of course, in that Sanhedrin, they would be bucking and fighting with each other about how they were going to interact with Rome. The Pharisees were typically middle class. The Sadducees were typically from wealthy families. So the Pharisees tended to be the far more conservative. The Sadducees tended to be the, the more liberal in their thinking and their application of their Judaism. Now, the fact that they worked together in the Sanhedrin is quite amazing when you think about it. But when it came to Jesus, because he was a common enemy that threatened their own existence, they had no trouble uniting together to get rid of him. And often case, that's what happened. People who may have different opinions, different thoughts, different positions, if they have that common enemy, will unite together against that common enemy, in particular in the arena of religion, in particular in this case, as it relates to Jesus Christ. Now, these leaders are considered to be Israel's shepherds. Flashback, Israel's shepherds who are thieves and robbers and intruders and hired hands who are not concerned with the care of the flock, but only their agendas. You see how all this is tied together. Here they are now, after Jesus has spoken, after he has given some instructions about the nature of the religious leadership and how they don't care for the flock and how he is that one true shepherd, here now are these illustrations that John gives us to give us a picture, a real life picture of what that looks like. These are the people who are rejecting who Jesus is, who are rejecting what he is doing, and are not willing to claim him as the Messiah at all. But notice now, verse 47, what I'm calling a political panic. There's a political panic that's taking place here. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So let's just pick this apart a little bit. What are we to do? We've confronted him, we've challenged him, we've accused him, we've attempted to trick him, we've sought to arrest him and tried to stone him, but he always finds some way to get out of that. Everything that we have thrown at him, he has evaded, he's countered, he's explained, or he's answered. We have done everything we can think of. What more can we do? 
Now, a reader of this gospel is going to say, hmm, here's some things you can do. How about listen to him when he's speaking? How about honestly take a look at the evidence before you? How about go back to your scriptures and study them? How about believe and worship the Christ, the Son of God? How about rejoice because the King of Kings is present with you? There are some things they could do, but that's not going to help them with their own personal agenda. What's happened here is that the religious leadership has abandoned their purpose as being the religious leadership before God and it has now become their own personal agenda, their own political agenda that is really at stake. He also says, or they also say here, he performs many signs. Jesus, he's performing all these signs. What are we going to do? <laughs> Look at the signs. How about that? You know? Consider them. So this is critically important in this, this account here because what they're doing is they're not denying any of the signs. They're actually affirming that Jesus did perform these signs. They're not saying he didn't do it. They just don't like it. And why don't they like it? Well, because they know, look at verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. As opposed to who? Them. And the Romans, who are the ones that have given them authority to govern and to rule in judicial legislative and religious matters, they will come and take away both our place, and in that word place, you need to put temple and our nation. So they don't deny any of the signs. Rather, they are worried that if Jesus continues to perform these signs, then their present stability, their status quo of this Roman yoke that they are comfortable to be under because they have now a position in a place of, of comfort, this will be undermined. Jesus would continue to gain a following. His following would result in a mass uprising. The Romans would not be happy and would in turn take away their temple and undermine their nation. There's a panic. This has nothing to do with whether Jesus truly is the Messiah or not. They're already blind. They don't care. They're more concerned about their own status quo. But they're the religious leaders. <laughs> The religious leaders are supposed to be doing what? Caring for their flock, looking out for their people. Now, there is a sense in which they have gotten to the place where they're justifying their actions because their whole view of the nation of Israel and their purpose has been skewed by years and years of false teaching and additions to truth. But they are deceived by their own doctrine. They're deceived by their own teachings to come to this conclusion. But now we have what I'm calling political expedience. You can almost feel the tension in this room, the tension in the story, the, the panic in the voices as they are talking together as this council, and into the noise of, of panic, um, a voice of authority and practical wisdom speaks up and captures their attention. And it is Caiaphas, the high priest. Notice what he says. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, now just pause here, Caiaphas was appointed high priest in AD 18, and he was released along with Pilate in AD 36, um, which would of course been after Jesus' death. Um, so when it talks about in that particular year, it's not saying that he was just a high priest that year. 
really the idea there is in that fateful year. That, that's the kind of idea that's going on there. So here he speaks in a very shrewd and salvific manner. Listen, you know nothing at all. Let me translate that into modern English. You don't know what you're talking about. Now, Josephus, Jewish historian, talks about the Sanhedrin. And one of the things he talks about uh, concerning the Sanhedrin is that they were very loud and unruly and rude in their discussions. So it was more likely this. You guys are a bunch of idiots. You don't know what you're talking about. You guys ever watched British Parliament? Now, one of the things that you can observe if you ever watch British Parliament is they, they know how to insult you in a very kind way. Right? And if you ever want to learn how to do that, just watch British Parliament. Because they will stand up there, you're right, honorable so-and-so, you claim blah, 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 blah. And everyone's like, yeah, you know, and they, they respond. It's, it's insult after insult after challenge after challenge, and it's, it's polite rudeness. This was not polite rudeness. This is just rudeness for the sake of a point. So he speaks now, you don't know what you're talking about. Nor do you understand, get this, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. It is better for you. It's not better for the nation. It's not better for the care of our flock. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So it's better for you. Look at what you have to lose, council. Your place, your temple, your position in the Sanhedrin. Your nation. It is also better for the nation. We don't want all that God has done through the years establishing Israel and preserving Israel to be undermined by this miracle worker. We have the responsibility to look out for his temple, for his nation, and to be sure Rome doesn't take back any of the freedoms that they have given us. We need to get rid of this man. We need to take care of removing this man. All of these things are going to be then at the expense of killing off this man. Now friends, this was not a discussion of a religious nature for the care of the flock. This was a politically expedient discussion. It wasn't considering whether Jesus was Messiah at all. He was simply a bother to their status quo. He was threatening their status quo. And Caiaphas here is speaking his own thoughts, his mind, his thinking, politically thinking, hey, if we get rid of this man, we solve the problem. This is pure politics that plays with the life of a man, not on genuine grounds for ethics, fairness, or humanitarian motives at all, but purely for political purposes. And so when Caiaphas argues that Jesus must die for the people, he is using sacrificial language, but doesn't necessarily understand all that he is saying. Look back at John chapter 10 and verse 11. John chapter 10 and verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, what? Lays down his life for the sheep. You go back to Verse 50 of chapter 11. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die, what? 
for the people. He, it's the same salvific language. It's the same kind of language that's saying this man is going to die as our substitute in our place. And so Caiaphas isn't meaning necessarily that Jesus' death is going to be a religious sacrifice that atones for a nation. He's just simply thinking that he will die as a scapegoat in order to spare the nation and its leaders. But John now tells us that there's something far more significant going on. And so here we have prophetical irony. In Caiaphas's words, we have a double meaning here. And John tells us that, verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. When Caiaphas spoke, he meant to speak. He was giving his thoughts. He was giving his political savvy in answering this. And very, very skillful he was in saying that. But it wasn't just Caiaphas that was at work here. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, he wasn't thinking that he was prophesying. That's the point. But his words were prophetic. And not for the nation only, but also to gather in one, into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So sometimes God speaks through a donkey, right? Remember, um, uh, Balaam's ass, actually, is, is, is how we, uh, we understand that. But he speaks through that, that donkey, that ass. And that, it's not that that donkey was walking around and said, oh, see, grass, oh. Now I'm going to speak. Uh, He wasn't processing it that way. God just used the donkey as a mouthpiece to communicate what God wanted him to say, right? Um, But God uses here Caiaphas in his own thinking and his his own reasoning, sinful as it may be, but he uses it to be prophetic about what God was going to do in offering up his son, Jesus Christ, as the sacrifice for the nation. But not just that. What was it that Caiaphas prophesied? Two things. Notice that Jesus, number one, would die for the Jewish nation. All right? That's verse 51. That, that he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Again, this is salvific language that speaks of Jesus being, number one, a ransom, a payment, a payment necessary to cancel out a debt to buy back the idea is that Jesus' sacrifice is a ransom. He is our substitute. So he is dying in the place of us. On a political level, either Jesus dies or the nation dies. That's the idea here. That's why he needs to die. Because if Jesus doesn't die, then the nation dies. On an eternal level, either Jesus dies or we die. And we're reminded of John the Baptist's words here, behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus' death is a substitutionary death. When he died on that cross, he died for certain people, for Israel. But also he died for the world, and in particular, uh, John mentions that as we go back to verse, uh, verse 52. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, that might want to say begins with the Jews who have been scattered because of the diaspora, 
but I think it also is referring to those other sheep that are not of this fold, this reference, this, this one flock, this, this one shepherd that needs to be gathered, which ultimately would be the Gentiles. Again, John chapter 10. So we see what Jesus is saying in John chapter 10 about being the shepherd of the sheep now being illustrated in chapter 11. John chapter 10, verse 16. And this is Jesus speaking, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. It's gathering. So here, John is reminding us then that Jesus uh, would die for the nation, but he would also die for those who are the children of God scattered abroad, and in, in his death, he would bring them together as one. So you just see all these themes developing here as we move through the story. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter just affirms these realities. Listen to First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen, speaking about the church here, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Uh, he's speaking here about the un, un, uniting of the church, the, the creating of the church, this one body with one shepherd. All this Caiaphas is saying by his statement. That's what John is saying. He prophesied without even realizing that he was prophesying. So Caiaphas, speaking as the high priest without realizing it, prophesies about Jesus' um, upcoming substitutionary death on the cross for the nation, for the world, and as a result of that, now we have political unity. Notice, as Caiaphas um, speaks these words, um, his leadership then brings together this, this um, united hostility. It's firmly established. So from that day on, they, the council, the Sanhedrin, made plans to put him to death. Now, this isn't just a group of Pharisees gathered together to saying, what are we going to do? This is now a formal statement, a formal agreement, a formal strategy by the Jewish religious body that is presiding there over the nation. We are going to arrest him with the desire to put him to death. So Jesus has already been on trial and he has been found guilty. The Jews have already condemned him to death. Which means that what we have yet to take place in the story where Pilate brings him out, that is now the Roman part of it affirming what the Jews had already established. But he has been found guilty already without a trial, so to speak. This is now... Or I should say, this is how false shepherds respond to the clear evidence given to them. Now this week I was reading um, a biography by J.C. Ryle. Uh, J.C. Ryle was a faithful evangelical pastor in England during the uh, mid-1800s. Uh, he served for 36 years in two small country parishes. But he had become so popular in his writings that at the age of 68, I believe it is, he was asked to be the Bishop of Liverpool. And um, many people did not approve of him taking that position because he 
was so biblical and so strong in the word. Now, I just want you to listen to some of the statements that were made. I'm going to read a little bit of the portion of what I was reading. J.C. Ryle was a very controversial figure, the writer says, in British evangelicalism. He saw liberalism and ritualism and worldliness eating away at the heart of the Church of England, and he took such clear stands against these things that criticism against him was sometimes brutal. In 18, or 1985, the Liverpool Review, November, I should say 18, 1885, published this assessment. Dr. Ryle is simply about the most disastrous Episcopal failure ever inflicted upon a long-suffering diocese. Let me translate that into modern English. Dr. Ryle is simply the most disastrous pastoral failure ever inflicted upon a long-suffering church. He is nothing better than a political fossil who has been very unwisely unearthed from his rural obscurity for no better purpose, apparently, than to make the church ridiculous. Now they're speaking specifically because he stood for God's truth. He taught God's truth. He wasn't some weird, wacko guy. He was just a straight shooter speaking the truth of God. Two years later, another paper, Figaro, May 14th, 1887, said, his name will stink in history. How would you like to have your name stink in history? It is to be regretted that he was ever appointed to fill a position in which he has done more mischief than the Liberation Society and all the atheists put together. Now, the point of all this, friends, is that those who are blind, those who reject the evidence of the gospel, do not like truth. They do not like God's truth. They do not like those who speak God's truth. And the reality is, friends, in our present culture, we are not far away from that kind of attitude being proclaimed about us who simply believe that the word of God is the word of God. Jesus Christ is not some good guy. He is the savior of the world who went to a cross and died on that cross for our sins. Society looks at that more and more and says, those people are weird. They're crazy to believe that the Bible is God's word. Who do they think they are to believe that Jesus went to a cross and died for their sins? Strange. Weird. Why would we even consider putting anyone who holds that in a position of leadership? And friends, we're experiencing that in different places around our country. People do not like those who have strong opinions and beliefs based on God's word. But I want to say, just this is simple, practical, plain teachings of scripture. They don't like it. They reject it. In fact, they're very hostile to it. So united hostility towards Christ, the things of God, and Christianity is nothing new. Let me just mention a few things here. The history books are chock full of persecution of the faithful. Times when the religious or political establishment of the day sought to rid itself of unwanted Christians. You have the early church, who ultimately were used as sport for the arenas, right? They're just, they're just Christians. All they're good for is to be chased around by, you know, by lions and eaten for the sport of everyone else. I mean, if you were a Christian, you were taken now from being you know, on a certain level. Maybe you were in society, maybe you were a wealthy person, you had a nice establishment, but you were found out to be a Christian, boom. You were considered the lowest of the low, not even, I mean, barely worthy 
to actually be uh, part of the sport entertainment of that particular day. Um, another one, the Reformation, where thousands were persecuted, slaughtered, because they believed the gospel. And just the effects of, the, of, of the, the Reformation and how, in particular, the Catholic Church was ruthless in, 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 in challenging people and finding people who simply had a copy of the word of God. The rise of communism that sought to stamp out Christianity. But let's be careful here. History also shows that there has been much abusive behavior under the guise of the church. Times when various Christian leaders who are supposed to be shepherding the flock have abandoned the plain teaching of scripture and instead twisted it to suit their own ends. And under those circumstances, the church becomes a political party first that establishes its rules and regulations, forcing people to conform or be abused, justifying the killing of detractors. We certainly had that, you might wanna say, across Europe with the Catholic Church and, and the Protestant Church and the battles that went. You know, when you had crown against crown, it was always church against church. Okay. And you go to Russia, and the, the, the formal church in Russia is the Russian Orthodox Church, which basically is an arm of the government. Okay good way to, to, to connect with people. I mean, it's politically strategic, but it's not what God has called the church to be. Here's some other examples. The Crusades, fueled by the Catholic Church's desire to possess Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. They, they, listen, they, they agreed and they granted almost what we might call a pre-forgiveness of sorts to certain Templar knights so that when they abused, raped, tortured, or killed the innocent, they were absolved of any guilt. And so they would get that absolution before they would go out and plunder and do all these things that we would say are horrible. But the church has already granted their forgiveness. So now they can, all right? So the church now has established ideology that is not rooted in scripture at all, but it's in the guise of the church. Now many people who are not Christians will, will say, well, you know, I don't want to be a Christian because Adolf Hitler was a Christian. You know what? He, maybe he went to church sometime. Maybe he, you know, was in Germany and he was a part of a particular church. But let me tell you something. His passion for the Aryan race and his hatred for the Jewish people was not rooted in Scripture at all. That is not the plain teaching of Scripture. But when you start using the church as a means to kind of accomplish your purposes, we've abused the purpose of the church. Now, you guys may remember this. You guys remember David Koresh and the Branch Davidian? Some of you do. It was a cult back in Waco, Texas. And was it Waco? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, he, he kind of set himself up as being the Messiah. And through that, manipulated girls in particular to come to his bed and be a part of his, his harem and just created this whole, this whole kind of cultish experience where, where he was the ultimate authority and the ultimate ruler. And, and it was all at least from his thinking, based on scripture. And friends, just, just hear this. You can take scripture and you can twist it and make it say what you want it to say inappropriately so easily. I mean, the, the common example is, listen, Judas went and hung himself, right? Go thou and do likewise. It's scripture. But if I preach that to you, you'd say, um, you've got a problem with your interpretation, right? 
So we've got to be careful because the church, although it's called the church, isn't always representing what the Word of God actually says. That's why across this country and around the world, we have churches that are built, but there is no gospel going forward because the churches have abandoned the gospel. They are liberal churches, and that simply means they don't believe the the Bible to be God's word. They don't believe that the gospel is a substitutionary death kind of gospel because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. They would say that Jesus died as an example of what we should all be doing, giving our lives for mankind. That's not the gospel. That's not what we read in Ephesians chapter two. And so the church now becomes an entity that is not faithfully representing God, and so they are shepherds who are not shepherding the sheep. And there is hostility when someone comes and says, well, this is the truth. When I first came to California, I was part of a denomination called the American Baptist Church. And I was trying to get in and trying to work with, with that particular denomination. It's a completely new denomination, considered it liberal. Um, and then we'd have these pastor pod things that would get together every once in a while, um, you know, small group kind of gathering. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. Every time we, we met, we said, let's talk about something. I would say, how about we talk about theology? And they would look at me like, is this guy for real? No, we need to be talking about leadership strategies and we need to be talking about technology and things like that. It's like, can't can we just talk about the word of God? Then I went to a pastor's conference for that denomination. We didn't even open the Bible once. And the takeaway part for me was, if you want to grow your church, take your key people to San Francisco, to one of the main hotels there, and spend two or three days and see how they treat people. Take that back to your church and boom, it will explode. It's like, where does it say that? And for me to speak up in that context about, hey, what about the truth? What about the gospel? What about what God says? Just looking at me weird. You actually believe that stuff? Yeah, I actually believe that stuff. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm no longer going to be here. But friends, I'm just trying to tell you that the the church is out there, but there are parts of the church that they have all the, the fixings, but it is not the church of God. And when the true church of God, when people like you and I speak God's truth, there is hostility because they do not like it. It's looked down upon we're simpletons, whatever it might be. No, we're faithful Bible believers that just love the word of God, love the God that's in the word of God, and read the word of God plainly rather than slicing it up to make it say what, what it doesn't say, right? When the church and politics marry, it's rarely a good thing. When the church becomes a political arm, all, it, it always wrestles with abandoning its core tenets for the betterment of a political agenda. It's always a tension there. It forgets the gospel for the sake of power control in the nation. That's the response of the leaders. A, a united hostility. A united hostility. Oh, they're united. We're all about unity. But united for what? Now the third one, the response to the multitude. Before we actually get to their response, there is a transition here that John gives us about what happens to Jesus here. He tells us that Jesus' public ministry has come to an end. 
public ministry meaning him going to different places and standing and, and teaching in public places and proclaiming in public places, that kind of stuff. The rest of the stuff now is happening in a private way or it's part of the passion story. Look at verse 54. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim and there he stayed with his disciples. So Jesus anticipating the hostile, hostile unity of the Sanhedrin moves um, not in panic, but he moves away uh, to Ephraim and begins then, he might, might want to call his private ministry in this, this kind of isolated town of Ephraim. D.A. Carson notes, to those with eyes to see, he was making a theological statement. No human court would force him to the cross. Now, I mean, all through the story, when they, when they try and stone him, they try and arrest him, what happens? Jesus evades. What's the point? He's going to the cross, yes, but he's going to the cross at his time, not on his terms, not on yours. So it's a reminder also of what Jesus said in John chapter 10. Well, we're going back there a lot, aren't we? Verse 17 and 18, look there. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. <laughs> All right, Sanhedrin, you may be out to get me, but guess what? I'm going to Ephraim, and I'm coming on my own terms, and I'm coming when I want to come. Thank you very much. Now, this little transitional statement is a reminder to us, and get this, the drum of God's sovereignty never beats to the determined will of God. Of man. The drum of God's sovereignty never beats to the determined will of man. In other words, man never determines God's sovereignty. Of course, those two things don't go together. And God's sovereign purposes linger on the following words that describe this religious, or sorry, this response of the multitudes. So here's the crowd's response. And listen, we, we've already seen a number of things. We've seen um, we've seen genuine belief, we've seen united hostility, but I, I really think as we come to this passage, we see some, some fickle uh, superficiality. And, and, and we have to come to this particular passage with a, a broader scro scope of what's going on in the Gospel of John, not just this particular text, but just understanding what happens with the multitude on various occasions. Let's pick it up, verse 55. Now, the, the Passover of the, of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? And you're kind of like, oh, what's going on here? Then verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Aha, so th th this order has gone out. There's this... Uh, this, this hostility toward Jesus that's formal, coming from the Sanhedrin, and now the people are saying, mm, I wonder if he's gonna show up or not. He, sh he showed up the last two years. And when he came last time, during Passover and other festivals, he went to the temple, and he, he's teaching, and he's talking, and he's there. I wonder if he's gonna show up now. Now, it's understandable. But they're having this, this, this attitude. It's understandable that they're thinking this way. Now, it isn't that they're, they're, they were waiting for him to come and teach them more truth about the kingdom. 
more truth about him being the, the water of life or the bread from heaven or eternal life, but, but more about looking and hoping for some kind of a show to take place. There's a conflict now that's going on that's, that's heightened. It's formal. The Sanhedrin has called for his arrest. I wonder if he's going to show up. They were certainly interested in Jesus, but they were not committed to him. These are the same people, and get this, who in a short while will line the streets of Jerusalem, chapter 12 and verse 13, yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And then just a few more days later, John chapter 19, verse 6, they're the ones that are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. See, there's this fickle superficiality on the multitude. This is the nature of fickle superficiality. It blows in the wind of popularity. It embraces the latest fad. It embraces the latest popular doctrines. It remains unrooted to the plain and core teachings of Scripture. What's next that's blowing down the pipe? You know, the Da Vinci Code came out a number of years. Oh, everyone's Da Vinci Code, panic over the Da Vinci Code, all this kind of stuff, Da Vinci, Da Vinci, Da Vinci. Everyone's just wondering about that, right? And then what, the shack comes out. Oh, the shack, the shack, you know, you know. Hey, listen, the Bible has been out for a little bit longer. But see, these, these things blow in and out. Everyone gets all caught up in them, drawn away. Again, thinking about J.C. Ryle and my, my reading, here, here, here's some things that he said that I think are, appropriate for us. He identified that the, the, the reason the church is this way, remember this is back in the 1800s, the reason the church is this way um, is because they have failed to grow and to embrace a doctrinal base in their lives, a doctrinal stability in their own personal lives. And that's, that's part of the reason why uh, there was increasing liberalism in his time increasing ritualism and, and just the kind of worldliness that he saw. And no, here's some specific words now. Dislike of dogma, he wrote, is an epidemic, dis, sorry, dislike of dogma, that's teaching or doctrine, okay, is an epidemic which is just now doing great harm and especially among young people. It produces what I must venture to call a jellyfish Christianity. A Christianity without bone or muscle or power. Alas, it is a type of much of the religion of this day, of which the leading principle is no dogma, no distinct tenets, no positive doctrine. Why talk so much about doctrine, Pastor Rod? See, he's addressing that here. We have hundreds of jellyfish clergymen who seem not to have a single bone in their body of divinity. They have no definite opinions. They are so afraid of extreme views that they have no views at all. We have thousands of jellyfish sermons preached every year, sermons without an edge or a point or corner, smooth as billiard balls, awakening no sinner and edifying no saints. This is back in the 1800s. And we thought we were sophisticated and we had moved ahead, right? And worst of all, we have myriads of jellyfish worshipers, respectable church-going people who have no distinct and definite views about any point in theology. They cannot discern things that differ any more than colorblind people can distinguish colors. They are tossed to and fro like children by every wind of doctrine, ever ready for new things because they have no firm grasp of the old. 
Mark what I say, if you want to do good in these times, you must throw aside indecision and take up a distinct, sharply cut, doctrinal religion. The victories of Christianity, wherever they have been won, have been won by distinct doctrinal theology, by telling men roundly of Christ's vicarious death, in other words, his, his substitutionary death on the cross, and sacrifice by showing them Christ's substitution on the cross, his precious blood, by teaching them justification by faith, and bidding them believe on a crucified Savior by preaching ruin by sin, redemption by Christ, regeneration by the Spirit, by lifting up the brazen servant, by telling men to look and live, to believe, to repent, and be converted. That's how he says the church grows. That's how societies change. Show us at this day any English village or parish or city or town or district which has been evangelized with dogma. Christianity without distinct doctrine is a powerless thing. No dogma, no fruits. Now, we can be fickle and superficial or because of what John is doing in this gospel, he is growing us step by step by step by step by step in our belief, in our understanding of who Jesus is. It is important that we, his people, take his truth and we absorb it and we establish for ourselves complete certain understandings of who Jesus is and what he has come to do and what the church is to be like. So when we're like, oh, I don't know, whatever, you know, yeah, Jesus, he's a nice guy, he's kind of cool dude and stuff like that. No, he's not a nice guy, cool dude. He is the son of God. He's the Messiah. And he's called us to be something. He's called us to do something. He's called us to trust someone. And we believe firmly on those things. See, that's, that's important to God. That is important for his church. That's important for us. And if we aren't growing in that area, if we are not people with conviction, then we're like jellyfish just kind of flopping around. Right. I remember years ago, you guys like Farsight at all? It's kind of an old, an old thing. But one, one of the funniest ones I, I ever saw was the, the boneless chicken farm. Remember that one? It's a farm and all these chickens flopped all over the place. And, and you know what? I just, I just wonder sometimes if, if we have just like, you know, the church is like a boneless chicken farm. People are like, I'm in the farm, but pfft. And what, what Ryle is saying here, and I think what we can, we can recognize here is that God wants us to move away from superficiality and to actually believe someone and something and what that someone says about life and to learn it and grow in our learning so that we are establishing bone structure in our walk with him so that we can stand firmly and we can stand strong rather than be a boneless chicken farm church. Right? It's, it's quite a picture, isn't it? Not, I'm not saying that of you. You guys are robust, strong chickens, right? Clucking all the time and that kind of stuff. But you get the picture. All right? be, be careful there. Now, just uh, as we bring this to a close, so these three responses then. Genuine belief. This, this, um, this united hostility and this, this fickle superficiality they're all just three responses we see in this text, but there's a few other things that I think are important for us just in the next couple of minutes to kind of think through. And um, you know, a God in his ordering of things, I think, is timely and purposeful, but the first one here has to do with the arena of politics. Um, you may or may not like what I have to say, but just I want you to consider it 
and I believe it to be true. Number one, we must be careful that our commitment to the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, is not eclipsing our commitment to a political cause. Or I should say, is not being eclipsed by, right, our commitment to a political cause. Well, we all know that there's an election coming up, and we all know that there are primarily two parties that are in contention for a presidency and other things. It's always amazing to me how those who claim to be followers of Christ will abandon their, the clear teaching of scripture to vote for a political party whose platform stands in complete opposition to the plain and clear teachings of scripture. Now, you can do all the study you want, but I'm just, I, just, I just want you to consider that your responsibility as a citizen of this country is fashioned and shaped by Jesus Christ being the savior of the world and what he has revealed to you through his word. For some reason, in the quietness of a voting booth, what God says is jettisoned away or rationalized and replaced by a loyalty to a particular political party, whatever party that might be. However you're processing it, however you're thinking it through, when you stand there in that booth, first of all, stand there in that booth, all right? And when you are there, allow God to be God fashioning and shaping the decision that you have to make for his glory, for the betterment of the society in which you live. Do we really think that Mitt Romney will be the savior of the United States of America? Do we really think that Barack Obama has been the savior of the United States of America? No, there is only one savior. These are just men or women who are you know, seeking to be in place where a certain ideologies can be fleshed out in the context of a nation. And because we are God's children, because we are fashioned and shaped by his truth, that means that we have to evaluate all that is out there by the, the, the grid and the lens of God's truth so that we, we, you know, we filter it. It comes out and it's like, well, listen, this is far more closer to biblical Christianity and the kind of society God wants for us than this. In fact, this one over here, completely contradicts what God says is true and should be true. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. There's only one leader that will bring stability and an eternal health care plan. No nation owns him. No nation controls him because he has conquered death and is seated on his throne in heaven. He does what he pleases and orchestrates the affairs of man. But get this, sometimes his choosing to do what he pleases is not the person that you would choose. I don't think you would have chosen Caiaphas to speak and to prophesy about what was gonna happen. And the history records of the Bible show that God orchestrates his purposes through sinful, pagan leaders to accomplish his will. And why is it that we think that here in the United States that the president has to be a pastor? No, he's leading a country. He's not, he's not pastoring a church. So we, we have to filter some things and do some wrestling match in our head to say what is it that God would call us to as far as participating here. He calls his children to be faithful citizens in the countries in which they live, to be humble, respectful, submissive, but to never ever give away any of their freedoms in Christ. And as they have opportunity to affect the health and the well-being of that nation by their present 
uh, by their presence and participation. Now listen, a qualifier here is this. As much as we must be careful that our commitment to the true Messiah is not eclipsed by our commitment to the political cause, we must also be careful that our commitment to the sovereignty of the Messiah does not result in our lack of obedience to his instructions to have an effect on society. And what I mean by that is this. Let me say it again. We must also be careful that our commitment, this is not number two, by the way. This is still building on number one. We must also be careful that our commitment to the sovereignty of the Messiah does not result in our lack of obedience or participation to his instruction to have an effect on society. In other words, we say, well, if God is sovereign, he's going to work it all out in the end, so I'm just not going to do anything. Now, sadly, there are some churches that kind of, kind of view like evangelism that way, right? If God's drawing all people to himself, then he doesn't need me. He'll do his thing. People will come in the door. No, God calls us to be responsible, faithful citizens and to have an impact where he has placed us. And so with that, um, with that sovereignty, we trust it and we do his will, okay? That's, that's, that's been the call of missions, the, the pioneer missionaries went out not because like, I've got to go out there. God's forcing me to go out there to share his gospel. No, it's like God is sovereign. He is, he is spreading his kingdom. I'm going to go out there and be a part of what he's doing. Well, God is at work in the United States of America. Maybe not in the way that you and I would like it, but he has his purposes, and he wants to use his children to accomplish them. So don't abandon that responsibility by saying, ah, I'm not going to do anything. I just want to encourage you, vote. Go out there and vote. Here's the second thing, completely and totally unrelated, but getting back to something we talked about. We must be careful that we are not setting, settling into a jellyfish Christianity. Let's just go back and just um, kind of peruse John's gospel a little bit. The gospel of John is pushing its leaders, or sorry, its readers and listeners to do a number of things. Number one, to think. Secondly, to examine. Thirdly, to evaluate. Fourthly, ultimately, to believe. And friends, that takes work. It takes work to not be a jellyfish. God is calling each of us as we go through this gospel to do the hard work of study and learning and pondering and consideration because his children are to be people who stand firmly on his truth. A couple of weeks ago, I went down to um, San Diego to go to my son's graduation and uh, I remember, you know, thinking, okay, I, I need to get directions for this. Then I just remembered, wait a second, I can just hop on I-5 and go all the way down there. But you know what I did? I got directions anyway, right? And I got the directions, and I felt like, you know, I needed the directions. I know it's just down I-5, and I get down there on I-5, but I got to get off at a certain exit. I want to make sure I get the right exit. So we have the directions, and then, of course, I have a, an iPhone now, and... Um, you know, I needed the map, so I plugged my, the map into the iPhone and, and, and got that figured out. Again, the directions are, you know, get the i5 and go down i5 for, you know, however long and, you know, set it there so I can see it. And as I'm going along, of course, my, my daughter, Deanna, who had hurt her knee, is sitting in the front. And so she's saying, Dad, why aren't you using the, the Siri function? I've never used it before. So she set it up for me and we had conversation on the way down on this trip. It was really good. Um, you know, you just learn some things as you go. And then you know, our, our, we, we had some concerns about our car, and so we pulled off, and, and then as I'm driving, I'm getting a little sleepy and stuff like that, and it's like, hey, Deanna, can you find out where the, the next Starbucks is? So she 
plunks in, you know, Google and boom, 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 step. Right there, it's on the map. Oh, there's the next Starbucks. Like, oh, yes. Okay, that's gonna, I'm gonna, I can hold out for the next Starbucks, right? Because the last thing I want to do is have gas station coffee, right? I mean, that's just, that will not, it might keep you awake, but for wrong reasons, right? And, and so we, we got there to Starbucks. It was great. And then, you know, on the way back, it was, you know, where, where, where's, the, where's the next in and out Because we knew that Gavin really wanted in and out you know, you know, we wanted to make sure that was, that was good. So, you know, we were able to use it. Now, my, my point in sharing all this is, is this, that we, we had this map and had the basic idea of what it looked like, but I, I took the time, thankfully, to, to establish the map into my phone or print it out even initially, but even along the journey, I found out that I needed the map and I could use the map and it was helpful for me in my journey. Now, if all we do is say, I am now a child of God, I've entered into the kingdom, let me just get on I-5, <sighs> right? And I'm waiting to get to heaven. No, the journey is what God takes you through to learn, to grow. There are obstacles, there are road, uh, roadblocks, there are things that you have to do. There are Starbucks on the way, thank you Jesus, or Pete's, all right? You get to places where you can get fed and satisfied and all this kind of stuff so you can finally get to your destination. Spiritually speaking, it's not just a matter of getting in the kingdom, and there it is. It's a matter of getting in the kingdom. Now look at all I have and learning as I go. Oh, what is this thing? Who is this Holy Spirit that speaks to me along the journey, directing and guiding as I go? If we're going to stay as jellyfish Christians, we're just cruising on I-5, but he's not calling us to that. He wants us to be grounded. He wants our belief to grow so that we get to the place that we believe solidly in truth and doctrine about who he is and what he is doing and what he has done and what he calls us to do. And friends, we need that kind of conviction. So we can look at the evidence before us and we can walk away even as Christians, we can say, oh, okay, yeah, I know he does that, but I'm, or we can say, God, I, I want to learn, I want to grow, I want to I develop bone structure for the, your glory so that I will not be a spineless jellyfish Christian in life. Lord, help us today. We are amazed at your power. We're amazed, Lord, of the fact that not only have you perform miracles by healing people's diseases, but Lord, you have raised Lazarus from the tomb. Lord, you yourself went to a cross and died for our sin. You were buried and you rose the third day. And Lord, all of that with Lazarus was a picture of what you were going to do, but Lord, it is also a picture of what you have done in us if we have put our faith and trust in you. So Lord, help us now if we are your children that we would we would be wise and be mindful, Lord, to accept and to grow as you develop our faith. Lord, that you would strengthen us as your children to do your will. And Lord, help us then to be active participants in the communities where you've placed us, Lord, to, as we have opportunity to vote in a couple of weeks, Lord, to do it in, in such a way, Lord, that we are honoring you, that we would filter all the thinking, all the arguments and all the ideas through the lens of your word and your truth, and that we could be confident that when we're casting that vote, Lord, we're doing it for your glory. Help us, Lord, as we continue our walk with you, that we would, we would develop, Lord, this, this muscle and this bone structure, Lord, so that we can be strong 
And Lord, that we can grow further and Lord, we can be used in certain ways. Lord, help us not just to settle in, but Lord, help us to be diligent to, to believe and to keep on believing. And Lord, I just, I just wonder today if there's someone here who has heard the evidence over and over and over again, but has been rejecting it. Lord, would you, through your Holy Spirit and, and Lord, your power, grab a hold of that heart. Breathe life into them, Lord. Give them new life. Help them, Lord, to, to trust you, to believe you, to, to come running to you, and to experience, Lord, what the gospel is all about. New life in Christ. Lord, to begin that journey afresh, Lord. I thank you for your goodness, for your word. Lord, strengthen us today with it. We ask in your name, amen.